Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. For a new STEM interview series, today we have with us Dr. Shane Huntington from Melbourne, Australia. And he's a seasoned researcher, science communicator, strategic analyst, and we're really glad that you're here with us today. My um, pleasure. Yeah. Just as a start, would you like to give us a bit of a summary of your journey um, in your from research to what you're doing now? Why is your work important? What are the different projects you're working on? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I did start off as a as a researcher. Um, I did a degree in physics and a PhD in physics and worked in two main areas. One was optical fiber technology. So, you know, all the, the small little pieces of plastic coated glass that, um, you know, go around the world that allow us to have really amazing telecommunications, uh, the communications, internet, yeah. you know, internet, <laughs> the internet the Absolutely. So did a lot of work on those and uh, in particular, some specialty fibers, the sorts of ones that aren't used to work across long distances but might be used to move through the arteries of the body where there's sharp turns and things of that nature that are a bit more difficult to you know to, to traverse for for those those sorts of devices and alongside that i also did a lot of very high resolution imaging so i built something called an atomic force microscope during my phd which was um you know you can buy them now in fact i have a company in australia that sells them but um, at the time, you know, we had to build them. And so that was, wow. a, that was a big part of my PhD. And, and it, you know, it was something that, uh, you know, we, we couldn't look at things at that resolution back then very readily. So the only way to do it was with these sort of sophisticated instruments that yeah. allow you to look at things down on the, you know, the atomic scale. So I did that in, and then worked as a researcher um, for about 10 years after that. And ended up in an area which was really quite fascinating. It was um, called quantum encryption. And this was where you use some of the features of quantum mechanics or quantum physics to actually store and distribute information in a completely secure way. So what we were trying to do, we had a very large grant and I, I ran a, a center to try and produce a device that would give you individual photons uh, on, on tap. So one of the yeah. things that's sort of hard to get our head around is, you know, if I turn the light on, I get literally hundreds of millions of photons every second. I could filter those down to get just a few, and that's relatively easy. But if I just wanted one and never wanted to get two, so I wanted to either get zero or one, that's really hard to do. Okay. And so we, we created some devices to, to do that, and we, sold, we actually sold them out of Australia um, for a short period. I, I left that physics career at, um, after about a decade and I moved into the vice chancellor's office actually. So I became you know, a non-academic staff member of the university. Yeah. And that was really interesting because I, first of all, I got to write the university strategy. So the, the strategy for the University of Melbourne, I wrote with the vice chancellor, that was a, a year long project involved so many different consultations and staff, but it was really 
incredibly valuable to me. I learned a lot. Um, the vice chancellor at the time was also an incredible writer. So he, I was already a good writer. That's how I got the job, but he taught me a lot more. And, and then I got to do other things that I never got to do as a scientist. So for example, I got to go and work with the Victorian College of the Arts, which is part of the university as well. And I got to work with all the people, you know, from dance and film and television and you know, wow. the fine arts and so forth that as, as a physics guy, you know, it was kind of like, we, we never interacted with, with people from that part of the campus. And, and I, I learned more. Sometimes I say I learned more there than I did in the science faculty <laughs> because it, you know, it was the stuff I didn't know, right. It was the stuff that was really interesting to me. So I did that, uh, then moved on into a similar strategy role in the medical faculty uh, for sort of the last 10 years have just left the university a few months back. Uh, unfortunately, that was part of the, you know, the pandemic restructures that are happening across the world for many universities. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after such a long period of time, it was sort of nice to go and try something new. Um, mm -hmm. And alongside that, of course, the whole time I've been doing my radio show um, here in Melbourne, which is sort of one of the probably leading science radio programs and, you know, interview, I don't know, 270 odd people a year and Nice. And have been doing that. I'm about to hit my 30th year. So a lot of science communication, do a lot of science communication training as well um, mm -hmm. outside of that. So there's a quick snapshot for you. It's been a, <laughs> okay. you know, a, a lot of big changes. And I'm about to start running a, in about two weeks, actually, I start running a, as CEO, a charity called Little Big Steps, which is a charity that helps um, children with cancer. So looking forward okay. to that. Mm. So yeah, you have so many different roles and, and yeah, such a diverse <laughs> career. What, what do you feel like most? Like, do you still feel like a physicist? Do you feel like a science communicator, strategist? What, what yeah, something at the yeah, border so, of all of this? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good and interesting question because one of the reasons I left science um, was because I didn't like being a scientist, but I love science and yeah. that hasn't changed. But the job of being a scientist today is a real tough one. And yeah. most, you know, about 30 to 40% of the time is just spent begging for money, frankly, through systems that are really poor at assessing who should get that money. I, I've always applied the skills I learned, problem solving skills I learned being, you know, being a scientist to everything that I've done. So whether I do strategy work for people now, or I'm, you know, being a science communicator or teaching people to science communicate, I, I still use those same problem solving skills and those logic skills and so forth that I learned early on. And I think, you know, that's been the consistent piece that's run all the way through for me. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with it. I have exactly the same view on, on academia. I love research. I love science, but I really don't want to be the one who's doing all the research anymore. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. I agree. Yep. So as a, as a strategist, do you actually work on that as well? How to improve the academic life, academic community? Yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of work on that over the years. Um, part of it's been, you know, recommendations to government on how to change funding structures and programs. Part of it has been writing articles myself on this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle of writing an article at the moment, actually, on grant, um, grant programs. And, you know, okay. there's some simple things here in Australia that we need to do. I mean, a good example of that is, you know, you have people writing these 100-page applications and then waiting, you know, six to nine months getting almost no feedback and then being told no with a, you know, seven to 15% success rate. I mean, this is, yeah. this is just foolish at, at best, you know, it, it's a really poor system yeah. and look, other systems around the world have similar problems. I think ours is one of the worst. We, um, we have a situation here where to me, 
given that most academics think of it as a lottery, um, you'd almost be better just to run a lottery. Um, but you know okay. what? What I what I think is important is to say you know have a expression of interest round um, where you know you you literally cull seventy or eighty percent of applicants. But you know it's a five to ten page application. They find out within a, a month or two and. Only a small number get asked to do something more significant. Mm -hmm. But this is something that we could do straight away, and it would would help with mental health of all of our researchers. It would give them more time to actually do research, which is what they're supposed yeah. to be doing. Yeah. Um, and it'd just be fairer, you know, it'd be simpler and fairer. So, I do that a lot of that sort of work around um, around policy. I also, spend a lot of time actually, especially during the pandemic, doing work to help with um, PhD students and mental health. This is something that's really crept up on me because I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago this this article came off a discussion I had yeah. with um with a PhD student in uh, Tasmania and she phoned me up and she was really worried and thinking of quitting her PhD and I gave her a whole lot of advice mm. convinced her not to she's since finished a PhD and has a great postdoc position which is fantastic yeah. but it made me think maybe I should just write some of this advice down so I I wrote an article wrote with the a, 10 a, steps a, of why you should quit your PhD. Yeah, yeah it, was, I it had that fun. title, it had that title, you know, why you should quit your PhD. But really, it was about why you shouldn't. And all those reasons that people normally think are leaving for, like, for example, you know, my supervisor is an absolutely, you know, terrible a-hole of a person and, you know, treats me like garbage. All, all these things that really are not reasons to give up on your career. Mm -hmm. But what I found was, um, I think, you know, that, that article's being read some 30,000 times a year around the world. And there's a really big, serious problem with student yeah. mental health at the moment. And it's growing and it's getting worse. And very few, if any, institutions are doing, doing very much to resolve it. So I spent a lot of time on that, especially during the pandemic. Um, I gave a lot of talks on that as well, um, did, which yeah. was really important. Yeah. Okay. So what's the most, uh, the most you learned out about this? especially now in the pandemic about mental health of PhD students? What's the well, I mean, one tip that you would give any PhD student? Yeah, look, the one thing I would I would give as a tip to PhD students at the top of the list for me is to adjust your expectations on yourself. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to achieve the same things that you would normally have been able to achieve if all this wasn't happening. And whenever someone says, you know, we're all in this together, that is the biggest nonsense because it, you know the way it affects you individually is going to be different depending on your personal circumstances and there could be all sorts of things that are affecting that i mean it, it could be that you don't get to go and see a, an aging relative or it could be that you're a long way from home and not able to get the support of family it could be that you're financially strapped because you've lost your part-time work it, it could be that you haven't been able to go into your laboratory for six months and all your experiments have just been thrown out because all yeah. the mice were euthanized or it, it could be it could be a range of things but it's it's individual and we we have to really adjust our expectations on ourselves forgetting everyone else for a moment just ourselves and say i, I shouldn't be expected to do things as if this wasn't occurring mm -hmm. i'm going to be fair on myself here give myself a bit of a break and you know not there's already enough pressure on phd students i don't like to see them putting more on themselves yeah. as a result of the pandemic Definitely, yeah. That's good advice. Very, very well, yeah. So you're also training researchers in science communication to yeah, just talk better about their research. Um, why do you think researchers need this training? Yeah, so look, this is an interesting and, and somewhat, you know, it can be controversial, but to me, there are three 
really important skills for pretty much all researchers that we should learn. We should start learning in high school, actually, not you know in secondary education, not even in tertiary education, but we don't learn them all in tertiary education either. One is mathematics skills. I think this is important for pretty much all, especially in the sciences, but you know, even in other areas as well. Um, the second is, you know, our ability to, to write, um, you know, to, you know, our abilities in, in whatever language we're um, working in, you know, whether it be English or, or French or whatever, you've got to learn, learn your languages in high school and so forth. Um, but the third is communication as a, as a distinct skill. And this is something that we, we don't learn and we don't teach. Now, for, for scientists, this is particularly important because most, most research is kind of irrelevant if we can't communicate it to someone effectively. It might be that we're communicating it to a, a granting organization or through publications or through government for policy changes if we're working in health or medicine, or it might be that we're just you know, talking to some school kids to encourage them to, to do STEM. Yeah. Um, you know, communication is really important and we have to be a lot better at that. Great examples of this at the moment are, of course, you know, happening live with the vaccination problems yeah. around the world and issues around, you know, whether people should be wearing masks and all the different things that we've gone through during this pandemic. A lot of it is really a symptom of very, very poor communication skills mm -hmm. on, on behalf of many of the people involved. And that's, you know, this is a, a situation which is very serious. And if, if I can, Sarah, I'll give you an example where this really blew up a few years ago um, and why I think this is an example I give whenever I teach. In, um, in the Italian city of L'Aquila, um, there was an earthquake back in, I yeah. think it was 2008 or nine now, a very serious one, and a little over 300 people died. One of the things most people don't know is that about a week before that happened, there was a meeting of uh, an emergency sort of group that was put together with six seismologists and one government official. And there were, there'd been a lot of pre-shocks to this big earthquake, you know, foreshocks. And there was some concerns that there might be a big earthquake coming. The, of course, foreshocks aren't a predictor of major earthquakes. And in fact, it's very hard to do any sort of earthquake prediction, as, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. But they had this meeting. The scientists made a statement akin to there's no indication, you know, as a result of these foreshocks that there'll be a major shock. And that's true because there's no science that connects those dots at the moment. Mm -hmm. But the government official went out to the public and communicated that science in a way that led the public to believe there was no danger at all. In fact, oh. he, he even recommended a particular wine to drink to relax that night. Anyway, a week later, there was a major earthquake and there was some 28-ish, 29 people who died mm -hmm. Specifically because they didn't follow the advice they'd been taught all their life because they were unduly feeling safe because of this yeah. information that came from this scientific group. Okay. Now, what then happened was there was a huge public outcry, and all seven of those members of that committee went to jail for manslaughter. Wow. Now, as you might imagine, the scientific community responded, and there was a petition with some 6,000 signatures from across the world to have them released. I think after a period that the scientists were released, um, the government official was not. But you can see there where poor science communication can lead to, yeah. can actually lead to a loss of lives. If we fast forward now a little over 10 years to what's happening with, with COVID, we're seeing that extremely poor science communication yeah. is, is actually costing lives in many countries all over the world. So to me, the, the sort of, 
the, the evidence of the importance of being able to communicate your science is, is clearly there with many examples. And, yeah. and in some fields, it literally costs lives, not necessarily in the fields you might expect. Yeah, well, definitely true, yes. Mm. So you interviewed like over a thousand researchers yourself and being active as a science communicator. What would be your number one tip for a successful interview with a researcher? Ah, okay. To get um, the best out of it. Yeah, so look, the number one thing I think you have to do is, so I'll, let me give you a little hint about how I interview first. And, and yeah. this is not something you do first time you start interviewing. And, and it's been three decades for me to get to this point. So, <laughs> but generally people say, oh, how much preparation do you do before an interview? And I said, well, usually between interviews, we play a bit of music. And that's when I read and do the preparation in that sort of three minutes. That's about oh, wow. it. Um, but that's because I don't write questions. Um, I ask, you know, I always have the first couple of questions in my head, but then I listen to the answers. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're interviewing, interviewing a researcher, every now and then there'll be something that they say where they're just a little bit more excited. Yeah. And you got to, that's what you got to find. And you go after that. Yeah. Because that will, that will get you the best interview because okay. that's the part they're passionate about. And, and you'll hear it in their voice sometimes. I just get yeah. a little bit more animated or a bit more excited about one particular thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got it and, and you go after okay. that. So, and, and that's one of the reasons why I don't like, you know, having large numbers of questions rewritten because you, you then you, people just skip over that. They don't pay attention to it. So, the, the key thing is really listening to, listening. Okay. Um, to, to, to the, the person okay. you're interviewing. Yeah. So it's a lot about listening empathy the, as well. Yes, nice. Yeah, listening <laughs> to their, they're trying to hear where their excitement is. I mean, they get up every day and mm. they do this every day. They, they must love it, right? I mean, it's, it's long hours, it's hard work. They must love it. And you've got to work out why. That's, that's what people want to hear. They don't, they don't want to hear the details. Who cares? You know, numbers don't matter. They want to hear about the people and why they, why they care about it. Okay, so yeah. who has been your favorite person to interview then, where you thought, oh man, uh, this person is really passionate about whatever they do? Do you have any? Yeah, like, look, big yeah, I've got some, I've got some on? big favorites. Yep, can I can I give you three? I'll give oh, you three. sure, of course. Um, for very very different reasons. So one of my absolute favorites is a little girl named May. She is um, she's now seven. I think mm -hmm. I've interviewed her uh, every year for the last three or so years. Mm -hmm. She has primary immunodeficiency syndrome, so her immune system essentially doesn't function. And every year, and this was done, we started doing this before COVID came around. We would interview her about the importance of immunizations for everyone else and research into this area because you know her life is at stake and she was wearing a mask long before any of us ever were to protect herself um interviewing little kids like that that go through so much and her mother her mother comes along and she has the same mm -hmm. condition her name is louise um absolutely fabulous you know to me i get a huge amount out of that um the other two that I really love, the, the first one was a guy named Gene Cernan. He, he is um, the last human being to walk on the moon. Yeah. And for me, that was, I'm a huge fan of all the moon landing stuff, the Apollo era, all of that. Okay. And that was a particular privilege for me to actually just to get to do that. Yeah. And I'm, I, sadly, I'm pretty sure I was the last person to interview him before he died just a few years back. So uh -huh. Um, that was amazing speaking to him and talking to him about, um, you know, his experiences um, walking on the moon and so forth. So that was a particular thrill mm -hmm. for me. And the final one, um, which is so someone who I have just a, an immense respect for, is a lady named Jocelyn Bell. 
I'm not, okay. I'm not sure if you, her full name is Jocelyn Belbinell. She, um, she is uh, in the UK. Yeah. She's an astrophysicist. Most people um, don't know her name, but she was the researcher who discovered the pulsar, which is a, a type of stellar object that sends pulses out, um, mm -hmm. very, very large pulses in, in, in space, and we, we yeah. detect those. Um, her supervisor won the Nobel Prize for that discovery, and she was not recognized at the oh, time. Yeah classic mm -hmm. yeah really terrible stuff she's pr probably yeah. one of the most noted examples of that mm -hmm. um but she um she's an amazing amazing woman the first time i met her was in melbourne and the reason i love the interview with her is because i first interviewed her 20 years ago yeah and um when i was pretty young in radio hadn't done a lot and um had dinner with her did the interview it was really amazing and then I interviewed her again just last year, I think it was. So 20 years later, and we had a, a very different discussion because I was able to talk to her about her entire career over that 20 years between the two interviews. So for me, that was that was great. And she's just an amazing woman. She just won this, this really big award, I think something like three million pounds there in the UK. And wow. she's she's donated the entire amount to a program to help people get into STEM from underprivileged backgrounds and so forth. And and um, you know, it's just you don't see that very often. Yeah. So just wow. a kind, brilliant woman who should have won the Nobel Prize, but but unfortunately it was you know stolen by a supervisor. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm. So you're both like a radio host, but also a writer. What do you prefer more? Like, I mean, both are really important communication strategies, but you prefer writing or talking, presenting videos? Yeah, look, I do really enjoy the writing. It's something I've, I've been doing more of. And, you know, my wife is a, a really good editor for me, like yeah. um, pretty brutal, but, you know, is, <laughs> yeah. is, is excellent, you know, like makes my writing better always. The, the radio stuff, though, is is great. I mean, there's a there's a huge audience um, that you get to speak to. It is such mm -hmm. a privilege to do that. Nothing feels better than I bring bring a PhD student or something in, and we get a really good interview out of them. You know, mm -hmm. they walk in nervous. The first thing they do is ask you where the bathroom is because they need to use it ten times before they go on air. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're feeling really anxious about it, and and you bring them in, you make them comfortable, and you get a really great interview. And unlike commercial radio stations, where often there's sort of that gotcha media where they just, they kind of want to get you to say something that's controversial. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. We, we just try and get the very best out of our interviewees. And, and it really is fabulous when that happens and you see them happy and, you know, they share it with their friends and family. And yeah, yeah. so I think radio is probably, for me, it's the thing I, I really enjoy. I've put the okay. most time into, yeah. Okay. And how did you get into this? Did you just try it out or just did someone invite you? Hey, you want to give this interview or yeah, was it, it was, always it a was passion of yours? No, it was, uh, um, it was absolutely the latter. I was, I was working in the um, School of Physics at um, Melbourne University and one of the other physicists in the building was on the show that I now run mm -hmm. and he got me on as a guest. Um, mm -hmm. They really liked me and just coincidentally, he left for an overseas postdoc uh, shortly thereafter and they wanted a physics person. So they asked me back and that was almost 30 years ago. So yeah, that, that <laughs> was, you know, it was just a bit of luck. Yeah, it was just a yeah. bit of luck. But, but the amount I've learned about communication doing that, that I've taken back into other things in my life, whether it be grant writing or paper writing or giving lectures, has yeah. just been profound you know you learn very fast 
radio is a bit of a cutthroat industry. You know, if you don't do well, they kick you off real fast. So <laughs> okay. you, you've got to learn, you got to learn quick. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. One, one topic I want to talk about is um, that you are currently based in the US, uh, in, in Australia, sorry. Yep. And from personal experience, I know that Australia is handling the pandemic very different, pretty unique way um, apart from the world. What is your personal take on this? What do you think Australia is doing? I mean, there's no right or wrong, obviously, because mm. nobody knows what is right or wrong. But just to have your personal opinion about all of this, because I saw that you write a couple of pieces on this as well. Yeah, yeah. There's Look, there's a lot going on there. I mean, first of all, I would say... Um, early in the pandemic last year, all of our governments came together and for a, a brief point in history, um, they were all essentially speaking with one voice with regards to the pandemic and seemed to be cooperating very well. We closed our borders very early in the pandemic. Um, when we had outbreaks, we locked down really hard and, you know, citizens in Melbourne really felt that, you know, we, we had breaches in our hotel quarantine, which led to close to a thousand deaths, which was mm -hmm. terrible and a very long and harsh lockdown in yeah. Melbourne, which, you know, for a lot of people was very, very difficult. Um, in, in particular, um, you know, school children and so forth that were yeah. learning from home, which is pretty dreadful. But, you know, it paid off. You know, we, we spent, you know, we will be paying for this adventure for 30 years mm -hmm. as, a, as a country because we had programs to assist those who lost their jobs and companies that didn't have income and, Everything was shut down, um, yeah. so there was a lot of lot of programs. Now, fast forward to today, and things have changed a lot. And one of the articles that you're referring to, I wrote with a with um, a friend and colleague from the Royal Children's Hospital named Margie Danchen about the types of you know the types of things that would be required in terms of communication if a vaccine became available. Now, you know this this was written back in September last year, so almost a yeah. year ago now. But a lot of it was about listening to the community, having one clear voice, all of these things, which unfortunately now we've gone the other way. And we're in a unique position here in the sense because the risk of COVID at the moment is fairly low here. Although right now, as we're doing this, this recording, there's quite a substantial outbreak in Sydney, which is very, you know, very concerning and a few little spot fires up around the rest of the country. But we've, we've had very few COVID cases here. And what happens when you're in that setting is that some of the organizations responsible for, for drug safety and recommendations around vaccines start to produce, you know, communiques that talk about the risks of the vaccines themselves and compare that risk to us having no COVID cases. Yeah. And, you know, if you do the numbers, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that the, the worst thing you can possibly do in this country and most countries is get in your car and drive somewhere to get a vaccine. That's the really dangerous part, actually, the driving part. You know, there's been there's been some, you know, 80 to 100 deaths on Melbourne roads this year alone. You know, it's mm. it, it, it's <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do. But vaccines do come with some risk. Um okay. You know, but we're, we're used to accepting risk for many of the medicines that we take. You know, women would be very aware of that for things like the contraceptive pill. There are risks with flu vaccines. But the information being put out has been sort of churned up by our local media and turned into these incredible fear campaigns yeah. that have basically gutted our ability to utilize the AstraZeneca, the Oxford vaccine. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the sort of main, you know, the, the workhorse of vaccines that we were going to use here in Australia. 
primarily because we have a local company called CSL that can produce the vaccine here in Melbourne quite okay. readily in very large quantities. So, um, you know, we're in this situation at the moment where we've scared the hell out of everyone with regards to the AstraZeneca vaccine, but we don't have enough of the Pfizer vaccine to go around. And I think this is a this is one of these privileged positions we have where we don't have a lot of COVID. Yeah. Um, we haven't experienced the new Delta strain as yet. So yet, we're, yeah. we're just seeing that now in Sydney and mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to control than what we're yeah. used to. We have a leakage rate through our hotel quarantine system, which guarantees some cases. It's and not leakage, 100%. even though the, the hotel quarantine is so well safe. I mean, there's guards everywhere. That's what I heard, no? You would, you would hope that those guards had proper protection and so forth, but in some cases, you know, they're the ones getting infected and so mm -hmm. forth. But, but this has also come from a complete lack of sort of precaution around the idea that this is um, an aerosol transmitted virus. Mm -hmm. You know, so in some cases it's taken people, even now I'm hearing sometimes people sort of not willing to admit it. And yet we know, we know that this is true. Yeah. And so... The, the bottom line for me is that we, we took some very smart actions um, mm. early last year, which really saved us from a lot of grief yeah. and a lot of deaths. But now we've moved into a stage where we're failing in the area that I love most, which is around the communication of science. Mm -hmm. And you know, even in this last week, there's been probably four or five different messages from different organizations with regards to the AstraZeneca vaccine. The, mm -hmm. the prime minister came out and extended the indemnity clauses for protection of patients and, and, and general practitioners so that they couldn't be sued um, so that everyone could get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, previously, you know, we have a, a group that recommends safety around vaccines and they um, basically said no one under you know no one under 60 should get it or their their wording was the preferred vaccine was Pfizer even though that wasn't available to everyone um, if you're under 40 here in Australia basically you weren't able to access vaccines at all um, our Australian Medical Association said that they agreed with the Atagi group on these cautionary um, issues around the AstraZeneca vaccine but also agreed with the prime it was like who I'm not sure who to believe there we had some state premiers saying yeah. The Prime Minister's version of this is true, like the one in Victoria where we've had a lot of COVID. Yes, everyone should just go out and get vaccinated with whatever they can get, you know. And other ones were saying, this is outrageous. We weren't told. You can't give it to people under 60. No one in Queensland will be getting it. Under you know, it and, and the public must be watching this. Yeah, you know, I'm watching this yes. as, as a scientist and science communicator and just thinking, oh, <laughs> what choice do I make here? And then And then we have people saying things like, you know, you go to your local practitioner, have a discussion so you can make an informed decision. Yeah. Now, if I was a GP hearing all of this too, I'm not even sure what advice they could possibly yeah. give. And it's so confused at the moment, but that the core is that the communication is being hijacked by other agendas, political agendas, click agendas for newspapers you know there's nothing like a picture of a blood clot on the front cover of a newspaper to sell newspapers even though the chance of getting it you know it's like you know what one in yeah, a million or whatever know. the numbers are yeah. they're like so so small but all of those other agendas are hijacking the communication of this and there's a few people who are doing a spectacular job mm -hmm. but overall the community is very very confused I, yeah. i'm going on radio tomorrow morning and i have to talk about this and and part of me is not even sure what I should tell people anymore. 
I was, yeah, I was just ready to ask. So what yeah. is your idea? What are you doing about it? Like, are you actively campaigning? Are you yeah, giving yep. news? <laughs> are you talking to politicians? What, what are you doing about yeah. it? All, all of the above. All so I'm doing, <laughs> doing quite a few interviews with people who I know are good, solid communicators. So not, I'm not doing interviews with the people who are just trying to get a name for themselves. Um, through this process and being mm -hmm. contrarian to anything that's put out. Yeah. They're unhelpful. Um, of history will judge them badly because if if we have major outbreaks here in Australia, it will cause you know the loss of life and yeah. they'll be responsible for that if these people aren't vaccinated. Um, I'm doing all sorts of weird things. Like when I first got my, my first dose of Pfizer, I couldn't, we have an online booking system that was just Mm -hmm. non-functional <laughs> people couldn't get through and so i i actually just turned up to one of the big vaccination hubs because you could just turn up and wait oh, wow. and I, I stood outside for five and a half hours in the cold um to get my first pfizer shot i i live tweeted that entire experience it was okay. it was very funny people who follow me on twitter will remember there was this guy um named joel who was standing in front of me in the queue and he was a he was into a gardening sort of business or something or other and he said to me at one point you know when i get really stressed i you know just start working in the garden and, and about four four and a half hours in poor joel just lost his shit and he started weeding the garden outside the, the vaccination hub <laughs> like people were people were going crazy but it you know but it was an experience and and yeah when I went back the second time for my, you know, three weeks later or so yeah. to get my second dose of Pfizer, you know, I took my 13 year old teenage son there um, because I wanted him to see what this looked like. You know, I, I grew up in a world where, you know, I think there was a couple of movies where we saw something like this, but you didn't see this sort of stuff. No. And I wanted him to see, you know, the importance of, of good healthcare and science and what mm -hmm. they can do. And, you know, he, he grumbled a little bit, uh, you know, as a teenager, which is fine. We had to wait for a little while, but, you know, got my injection, um, felt like absolute garbage for several days. I, I oh, wow. tweeted all about that experience, did my radio show half dead the next day. Um, but it was, you know, it was important to be honest about the fact that, yeah. you know, relative to what COVID could do to me, this was a very, very smart thing to do. And oh, I wasn't just doing it for me. You know, I was doing it for people like the, the young girl I, I mentioned yeah. earlier named May, who, you know, she doesn't have a functional immune system that can protect her. You know, yeah. if she ends up with COVID, she's dead. And we need to protect people like that, you know, and it's yeah. it's our, our job to do that. So yeah, no, that's that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Well, so you... I'm doing as much as I can. Um, okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to absolutely beat down people who are putting, you know, scaremongering type messages out there. But you know, there's a few of us doing it. We're doing our best, but yeah. it's a big problem. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That has been. Thank you so much. It has been really interesting. Um, now, at the end, we do always have a couple of random questions that don't have yep. too much to do with science or your work, but just to get a bit know a bit more about you personally. So, can we just start with those? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So the first one is: uh, What was your favorite subject at school? Ah, well, I mean, one of the things that um, often surprises a lot of people when they talk to me, I've had this question before, is that my favorite subject and my best subject when I did my high school, end of high school exams was actually English. Mine um, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's really rare, especially in physics, for someone to say that, you know, most people say maths, but, um, but no, for me, it was English. I, I really enjoyed English. I enjoyed writing. I, I was lucky I had a really good English teacher in the later 
parts of my right. um, schooling. But when I went to university, I, I one of the subjects I took, um, when I first got to University of Melbourne, I lined up in this very long queue. It was like getting vaccinated. I was staying there for six hours, waiting to get my subjects um, back in those days when it wasn't electronic. And um, I wanted to do astronomy, first year astronomy, because um, I, I wanted to be a, an astronomer oh. or astrophysicist. And um, when I when I got up to the desk, the guy behind the desk, you know, said to me, said, oh, I'm sorry, that subject's not available anymore. The, the lecturer died last year. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I thought I came to this university to do this. It's the only reason I came here. I would have, wouldn't have come here otherwise. And so I ended up doing a subject which was offered in the arts faculty, which was called a history of astronomy, which sounded pretty close. Um, but it ended up being, it ended up, yeah, well, it ended up actually fulfilling that sort of love of English because it was, um, it was all about writing. It was all about reading all these amazing yeah. books about the, the last sort of three, three and a half thousand years of astronomy and what that looked like. And that ended up being the best, those philosophy subjects were the best subjects I ever did at the university. Wow. And they were the ones that I, I learned science in the philosophy department at Melbourne University I didn't learn it in the, in the science faculty is... I, I learned the, the bits and pieces in the science faculty you know how to do experiments uh -huh. all those sorts of things yeah but the philosophy behind science how science works the stuff that's really carried me through yeah. I learned that from the philosophers because they wow. really you know thought deeply about that, that which is was great. interesting yeah, yeah that's really important now as a yeah science communicator like yeah, yeah absolutely what you're doing yeah that's that's yeah. amazing all right. So the next question is then, um, what are you truly passionate about in just one sentence? Uh, I, I'd have to say my my kids, you know, like I know it's a, a cliche, but, you know, I've got two boys. Um, mm -hmm. One of them has absolutely no interest in science whatsoever. <laughs> um, the other one's still young enough to, to think it's amazing. Um, but, you know, I spend a lot of a lot of time with my, my nice. kids and I, I, you know, really um, for me, just making sure that they they get to grow up with mm -hmm. a great education you know doing good things having good experiences and you know getting getting them through all of this stuff yeah so Especially that's now, that's yeah. a that's a big part for me and you know with them and alongside that is um you know one of the things i think is really important um and i try to teach them this is just the idea that mental health is health you know we we section it off we give it a different name we mm -hmm. we pretend it's subordinate but it's not. And, yeah. you know, it could be 50 years before we really get this entrenched in society, but, you know, mental health is such an important part. And I, I want my kids to, to be able to talk about their mental health in the same way they talk about a broken bone. Yeah. And I hope, I hope they get to grow up to see that. I think it would be a, a great thing because it, it really does matter a lot. So yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, nice. Uh, so my next question is, uh, what are you most proud of? Is that also your kids, also your boys? <laughs> oh, look, you know, always proud of them, but you know, they can, they can be a bit rough and tumble every now and then. <laughs> um, what, am I, what am I most proud of? Uh, look, I, I think it's hard. I, I did do something a few years back, which turned out to be really good, which I was, I was particularly proud of. And that, that was, I set up a program in low socioeconomic schools called telescopes in schools. Mm -hmm. um, so I had some money at the University of Melbourne that I, I could have taken a salary, but I decided to do something else with it. And talking to um, one of my old colleagues and my first ever supervisor, actually, a lady named Rachel Webster, Professor, Professor Rachel Webster. She was an astrophysicist, or still is, at the University of Melbourne. 
And she, um, she and I decided to put together a program, which was to buy 10 research grade telescopes. So we brought 10 12 inch Schmidt Cassegrain Mead telescopes, which are mm -hmm. worth a lot of money. And we located those in 10 fairly poor or you know relatively poor um, suburbs of Melbourne yeah. and then we we went out to those schools and we would help the students and teachers to learn about the night sky and this this program was sort of set up off some money we then hired a, an old um, an old friend of mine who was a school teacher looking to get out of that into something else and mm -hmm. she came to run the program at Melbourne Uni the program now has money from um, a foundation that you know um, that helps um, students um, here in Melbourne, and so it's ongoing. And there are more telescopes now than ten, but they're at all these different schools. And I can tell you, when when one of these kids looks through this telescope, it's something like Saturn, and you just hear them sort of they take a breath yeah. of air, you know, they sort of gasp. Yeah. Um, that that's a proud moment when you've given those kids that experience. So that that's nice. something I'm I'm particularly proud of, and yeah. you know I I didn't put my name all over it. I'm just happy that it's there yeah. and going, and that's um, amazing. you know, yeah, it's 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 a really good program, and I think it's the only thing I know of, the only thing I know of where there are students, their siblings, their parents, their teachers, and people from tertiary institutions all in the same setting mm -hmm. talking about science. You never get that mix, oh, yeah. and um, it's been it's been really powerful. Amazing! That is, yeah, that's such a great project. Well done. <laughs> yeah. <Yep>, thanks. <laughs> um, okay. Next question is: What do you do in your free time? Ah, well, um, oh, well, I guess we're we're locked down half the time here. <laughs> 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 Look, yeah, okay, I do. Um, play a few computer games with my boys i um you know we have a couple of cats my, my wife and i you know we we try and get out and eat and do things when we can um you know that's that's certainly the thing you know i i'm a really okay. slow reader so if i'm reading a if i'm reading a book it takes me forever <laughs> okay <laughs> but um but now you yeah, watch a lot of tv you know netflix okay. and stuff we um you know always with the family uh, huh? yeah, yeah family a lot of time. stuff with the, a lot yeah. of stuff with the family you know that's it's great. um you know, I took my boys to hit some golf balls at the driving range the other day. That was that was a bit of fun. Um, you know, watching it, watching my teenager try and hit golf balls was, you know, nice. fun. But um, yeah, I used to do I used to do a lot of karate. So um, I got my karate black belt a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm not doing it anymore. I just I got to the point where I was feeling injuries. You know, when you get to a certain age, your injuries take longer to heal, and I had a few broken ribs and so forth in the last few years, and it was um, oh. <laughs> it was getting it was getting a bit bit hard to recover and work at the same time so mm. but yeah it hasn't been um you know go for walks i i listen to a lot of music um okay, always listening good. to music when i'm when i'm working um and when i'm right. working or not so yeah. yeah i mean as a radio yeah. host yeah there's always music involved too <laughs> yeah you know the one thing i don't do a lot of listen to radio surprisingly you know when you're <laughs> when you're on radio i don't know some people do but some of my colleagues are the same they you know you sort of go in there you do your thing and then you're out and you do other things and you try, yeah. you don't tend to think about it all day. So yeah, yeah. it's no, agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and the last question, my favorite one, what would you do if you were donated $10 million to your projects? Ah, $10 million. Well, look, one of the things I think I, 
I would want to do right now with that kind of money would be to set up a center for health communication. Mm -hmm. So I would want a specific center that deals with nothing but assisting with the communication of information on health. Mm -hmm. This was something we needed long before the pandemic. I mean, you you see this all the time when people read the news and it says, you know, oh, coffee increases your risk of this and something else decreases your risk of that. And you're trying to work out what you should do as a consumer. And this sort of information is nonsense. You know, these risk comparisons are absolute nonsense. They, They don't help anyone. Um, they're publications that are that put into the press because they've got nothing better to write about. But but putting that information out in a way that isn't helpful is problematic. I mean, if you've got really legitimate information like drinking alcohol or any time really, but mm-hmm. drinking alcohol during pregnancy has really serious risks attached to it, then that's information you want to put out. But some of these other smaller things where there's real, you know, it's really yeah. subtle. Just confusing, uh, yeah. Just confusing to exactly. people. And, you know, we've, we're, we're suffering at the moment from a, a vaccination uptake problem in many yeah. countries in the world. I mean, in particular, in the US, they're about to hit a hesitancy wall. Um, we haven't hit that yet in Australia, but we will soon. This is something that's been a problem for a very long time. And part of that is because we haven't bothered with it. You know, mm-hmm. we've never sung the praises of how amazing our vaccination programs are the fact that smallpox is no longer you know we 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 haven't talked about that enough we haven't talked about how great vaccines are as as a science because everyone just assumes they're always going to be around and now we're at the point where we wish we had we wished we'd done more work in that space to help people understand and we left this giant gap and all the anti-vax movements just jumped into this gap that we left and they had no competition really you know and but at the moment um you know what we really need is a group of people who are experts not in health but in communication because i don't expect everyone to be an expert in everything i think this is one of the things that's important especially in this area of health at the moment the majority of the health people i know are not good communicators and yet they're, they're putting information out in a way that's actually potentially damaging Mm-hmm. They need assistance from really good communicators. And if I had $10 million, I'd set up a, a, a center specifically to assist with that, yeah. that program to help with, um, to help, to help with how, to, how to communicate things effectively. Yeah. You know, even things like um, you know, the idea that when I get vaccinated, I'm not just protecting myself. I'm, I'm protecting those With around others, me. Yeah. And that's, what, that's what being part of a community is about. I, I truly understand why so many people at the moment are fearful of vaccination. Yeah. Um, you, you don't have to read very many news outlets before you find an article every day about problems with vaccines. And, you know, this scares people. And it's okay yeah. for people who don't know much about it to be scared. I think that's reasonable. But, you know, we really have to, we have to notch up our communication skills. So to yeah. me, centre dedicated to that, you know, yeah, would be great I'd love to, to just, you know, buy a really nice car or something. But no, I think dedicating yeah. dedicating that sort of money to <laughs> yeah. that. And, you know, if, if no one wanted to do that, I'd say back to the issue of um, PhD mental health and setting up really solid and good resources to, you know, to do that. And that would mean using your 10 million to leverage another 100 million or more off government to, to do that in a proper way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would be a great course, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It has been an absolute pleasure for me. Learned so much about communication and physics and everything, yes. 
It's been great, Sarah. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's it's not often that I'm the one um, being interviewed. Normally, I have to do all the work. It feels so much easier when you're on when yeah. you're on this side. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> okay. So yes, thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of STEM Interviews. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito and on Instagram also at STEMcognito where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there.